for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Shaped for glory through mission. Deuteronomy 6. As we began this series, you'll see on your bookmark there, uh, the first four weeks I talked about four foundational pillars. The foundation of everything that we as Christians base our faith on begins in the first five chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. And so we talked about them. We talked about our necessity to remember that God is faithful as Moses sketches the historical faithfulness of God in the lives of of his people. We talked about how it's important for us to cultivate a heart of obedience as Moses calls for obedience among the Israelite people. How we are to pursue holiness. And we saw where he gives the ten words or the ten commandments that God has given to him and That is our standard for holiness that we pursue in this life. And then he tells us at the end of chapter 5 and into the first part of chapter 6 that we're to enjoy God's blessing, that that God didn't just give us commandments to condemn us, but he's giving us to commandments so that we might understand what it means to live life in relationship with him so that we can enjoy all the blessings that he wants to pour out upon us. And so we see that time and time again. And we know that these things come to us through the gospel. If you turn that bookmark over, and I, I hope and pray that through these weeks, this bookmark will become just kind of a, you know, a, a string around the finger to remind you and to help you. Uh, tape it on your, your bathroom mirror or in the uh, dash of your car, whatever might help you. Today we're going to move uh, to consider five resolutions. Five resolutions. And so... I want to talk just for a second about what a resolution is because I really balked at using this term resolution because I know you are as effective as I am at keeping a New Year's resolution, right? You've dropped more of those than you've made, right? I mean, it just it doesn't happen. But, but I want you to understand why I've chosen this word and kind of frame our understanding for these next several weeks. God engages us to participate in the, the transformation that he's doing in our life. His word tells us that we are to work out our salvation. For it is God who works within us to will and to work according to his good will. And so we know that God is working in us and we are to work his work from within out through us. And so resolutions, I hope and pray, help us to do this. And and resolutions are given so that we can state our participation in God's transforming work. It doesn't mean that everything depends upon us, but it does mean that we participate with what God is doing in us. It'll guide our understanding of God's work and, and, and to help articulate what we understand that He is doing within us through the gospel. These resolutions state God's desire for us. In other words, 
I hope that when we go through these resolutions each week, we'll consider one a week, that you'll not hear me talking about what you've got to do to impress God. But what you will hear is the heart of God for you to draw you in more deeply into a relationship with Him. Because He wants to reveal Himself to you, as we've seen over and over. And then these these, uh, resolutions help us to embrace His work and say, God, I want this for my life. I do. I I want to walk with you faithfully. And and we know the junk of our heart. We know the the propensity that we have to wander. Lord, I feel it. Amen? I mean, that's what the song says for a reason. But we also know that God is merciful and gracious and loving. And that when we turn to Him, He forgives us. And He brings us near in uh, repentance and in love. I want to do an exercise with you as we begin this morning that really just kind of sets the stage. And I'll tell you up front, I'm not, this is, there's no trickery to this. I feel kind of bad about having to like qualify wanting to do this because I know some of you are going, what are you doing? We know you. We're not sure we can trust this. But I want to do an exercise. Would you, would you do something with me? I'm not going to in any way make light of it. I just want to set our minds and our hearts. Would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? I want you to envision something. I want you to imagine. Would you just envision within your heart, within the depth of your being, a desire that is deep within you, that is strong within you, that works with such a power that that it, it creates motivations and affections in you to want everything in God's Word more than anything else. Can you see that? I'm not asking what's already there. I'm asking if you can envision God placing that there. What would it look like? What would it feel like? That that there would be a desire deeply within you so strong that you would desire and long and pursue everything that God's Word says more than anything else. Now look at me here. As you see that, you're just beginning to catch a glimpse of what God wants for you, of what He is working to do in you. Just a glimpse. It only gets better. It only gets more powerful. And that's what I want these resolutions to do for us. I want them to help us envision what God is doing in us that we might be strengthened to walk with Him in faithful obedience every day. And so the the first week we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about God shape my heart. Shape my heart. That's where the scriptures take us today. And here's the big idea that I want you to walk away with. That God shapes the heart by the gospel to grow a complete love for Him. God shapes the heart by the gospel to grow a complete love for Him. I'm going to give you four practices today through which we can participate with the transforming work of God to shape our heart by the gospel and grow a complete love for Him. So here is our resolution for today. Let's look at that. I resolve by God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ to grow a complete love for God. God, shape 
our hearts. Let me ask you a question as we begin today. Have you noticed how much of the media in our day and world today is really little more than fear-mongering? Have you noticed that? I mean, it's just like everything is told to us, not to help us and not to inform us, but to trigger something in us. Do you feel that too? I, I can't watch the evening news. It's cost me too many TVs from doing like a karate chop through the mid, I mean, not literally, I'm not that good, but, but I'm just saying it just conjures up within me that there are a plethora of fears that exist in our world today, right? I mean, we don't feel this one as heavily right now, but come April 1st, we will feel the heat on the back of our neck as taxes begin to press in upon us, and we realize how we have forgotten quarterly payments, we have forgotten to hold back as much as we should have, and you know, and again, we just begin to have that sensation uh, rise within us. I was meeting with a, an older pastor this week, older than me, uh, let me qualify that, and he said, you know, Lane, I've only got about four more years uh, before I'm able to retire. He said, I can't retire until I'm 66. I'm one of the first uh, generations that has to wait an extra year, and, and I forgot everything he said after that because I wasn't worried about him. I was thinking, great, I don't get to retire. If you have to already extend the age, I'm never going to get rid. I'm just going to work, work, just kind of disappear. You know, Lane worked, and then he was no more. Kind of like Enoch, you know. <clears throat> and that's what it feels like. I mean, you know, if I don't guard my heart, that's where my heart goes that quick, right? There's no, there's no small amount. Uh, what about our health and safety in this day and time, right? I mean, we have the Ebola crisis going on in our nation. And I'm not making light of this at all. I, quite frankly, humor is one way that I function in life. It's the only way I can cope with some things. But I'm not really about to make a joke about it. I don't know whether to believe it or not. Because one article I read says what? It's no big deal. They've got it under control. And you can trust the government. And another article says what? Run! You know, I mean, that, that's all it says. It just says, you know, if you live four states within Texas, go. I mean, that's always been a philosophy of my life. But I'm just, you know. But I have kinfolk there, so I have to visit occasionally. Keep my passport fresh to get in the state. What about ISIS? It's a real present threat, is it not? And if you know me, doomsday bunkers is just like a fraction of the capacity of my heart. Like, let me tell you why I haven't buried one in my backyard yet. Because they haven't built one to my specs. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm talking. You know, I have an escape hatch in my house. You don't believe me, but I do. You won't ever find it. And if you do, you'll be sorry you did. I'm kind of joking now, just trying to have some fun with it. These are real and present threats and dangers. And my question to you is this. Are we supposed to live under the immediate oppressing fear that they conjure up in our hearts? Because, man, these, these come against me. They, I mean, they just create stuff in me that I don't like, and it's not good. And then I have to balance. How do I take care of my family and not go nuts? You know, I try to figure that out. What about, the, uh, what about the, the rise, or shall we say the slide, of immorality and ungodliness in our world? 
And, and, and listen, it's no longer just present, but now it's shaping the laws of the land. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? My question to you today is this. What fear most grips your heart? Every heart has fears. Every heart has fears. What fear is gripping your heart? Because what we're going to deal with today is that there can be one consuming fear that so overwhelms your heart. Not that others aren't present, but that they don't rule you. That's important for us, friends. One commentator said in this passage, the fear of God in the heart is the most powerful principle of obedience. You see, we know from a scriptural perspective that the fear of God and the love of God are one and the same. That so often the way we qualify fear in this world is really a misinterpretation of what the true fear of the heart is. And to fear God is to love God, is to obey God. And that's the fear of the heart that I'm striving after today with this resolution. I want to read this passage of Scripture for us. Four simple verses. Chapter 6, verses 4, verses 5, and verse 6. And I want us to see from these verses four practices in which we can participate through the gospel in God shaping our heart for glory through His mission. Verse 4 begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And these words that I teach you today shall be upon your heart. Shall be upon your heart. Friends, I want to say this to you. And I want you to take it to heart. That before God does anything to you, for you, or otherwise... He wants to shape your heart for glory in such a way that is all satisfying to you, that is all consuming for you, and that is all glory in this life. And that's what we're laboring after today. God shapes our heart by the gospel through four practices. The first practice is this here. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Oh man, I got this one down. I'm good, Pastor. Don't worry about it. I, I got here down. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like my grandfather. I hear what I need to hear. <laughs> my problem's not hearing, it's the selection of what I ought to be listening to that I have a problem with, right? You don't believe me, ask my wife. Actually, you could ask my mother. Because she was convinced of it, and my wife became convinced of it, and now my daughter constantly reminds me of it. It's got to be a female intuition thing, because my son's in full agreement with me. It's all good, Dad. <laughs> but the women in my house are going, no, 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 you only hear us when you want to. And I went, that's right, that's it. 
but I don't actually say that out loud. Hear, O Israel. Friends, I, I can't overstate how important this one word is as a practice for us. And what Moses does is he turns the attention of the people to apply the ten words of the commandments. That's what he's just done as he's given in chapter 5 and then he's, he's told them to enjoy God's blessing. And so he's making a turn here with this word here and he calls them to listen, to, to pay attention that they might understand what God is saying to them. This word is used at every major emphasis with Moses. Chapter 4, he begins with the word hear so that he can call them to obey the things that they're going to hear. He calls them to hear at the beginning of chapter 5 so they can understand God's words to them, the 10 words of the 10 commandments that he'll give to them. Here in chapter 6, he says, I need you to hear because you need to take to heart. You need to shape your life by these words. And in chapter 9, he'll use the word hear one more time as he says, it's time to move out and follow God in moving mission forward. And to do that, you must first hear. This word is the central aspect of all of Hebrew life. It remains that way today for Jews, such that they recite the Shema. That's the Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew word for hear. The Shema Israel is what this is known for. And they recite these verses multiple times during the day because it is the center of their faith. It commands more than just a, a simple uh, natural auditory sense. But, but this God who among all the plurality and millions of gods in that day and time, he has distinguished himself in, in what way? What have we already seen? That he speaks, right? The God who has no image speaks where the gods who are all imaged by idols cannot say a word. And the God who is distinguished by speaking first commands that we respond to him by hearing. And so we understand that this sets the tone for the way that we relate to God. This is the, the mantra for all of life in relationship with God. The Shema Israel, is, 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 it says this, that God, you are God who speaks. We will hear you. We will listen so that we might understand who you are. And this word, sketches a picture of what it means to live in relationship with God. Now, if I ask most of you, what does it mean to live in relationship with God in one word, the word you would probably say would be what? Love. I mean, if you, if you know God, you, you know God is love. But before God is love, we have to ask the question, how did we know God was love? Because he told us. Because he revealed himself. And how did we know that? Because we heard. Because we heard. Hearing is the right posture in relating to God. It is critical for us. And so Shema, hearing, it means that here delineates relationship with God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They call it the icon of the Ten Commandments. And they say that the Ten Commandments are like the table of contents for the whole of Scripture. So when we say here, the Lord is one, the Lord our God, what are we saying? We're, we're bringing the whole corpus of God's revealed will into play. 
It is a representation. It is the icon that says, oh, that represents all that God stands for. That's what it means as the mantra of relationship with God. And and listen, it's not the fullest extent of the law, but here's where we so often go wrong in reading the law or the Old Testament of God. That the Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's not the fullest extent of the law, but it is the lens through which all of the law should be understood. Does that make sense? It's the lens. And so in other words, any part of God's word that we read, we need to understand it with a posture to hear and to receive because we've been loved. That's what it says to us. And when we propose to read God's word without hearing it to understand, in other words, we impose our own understanding on it, then we're not hearing, we're speaking. And when we receive God's word, believing things about God that his word doesn't say to us, therefore we say, well, God doesn't love me in the right way or the way I need, or God doesn't do this, God doesn't do that, or he does this and that drives me nuts, then we are imposing upon scripture something that scripture never says. Therefore, we can't understand God's word in the right way. But what Moses is saying to the people and what God is saying to you and I today is the first practice through which the gospel will shape our lives is to hear. Don't you love to hear good news? Man, I just love to hear my name called by a familiar voice, don't you? I love to hear my wife say my name. I love to hear my loved ones say my name. Why? Because when they say it, the, the instant they say it, that whole relationship. Man, I, I can hear my grandparents speak my name. I, I can hear my brother and sister call to me. I can hear my parents say my name. I can hear my wife. I can hear my kids. Why? Because the ear, the ear, hearing directly sources the heart. And when we hear from God, he speaks to us. And, and what happens, what, what, what Moses is calling us to is this, that, that the, the Shema Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, is the point where God's being fuses the living of his people. And do we not want to live that way? We want to live in God's very being. We want God to be alive in us. And Deuteronomy 6, 4, where we hear, where we position ourselves humbly before God to receive what he has to speak to us in such a way that we would understand it, but not only understand it, so that we could apply it and walk in it. So you see that? That's the posture of hearing, is that we receive in such a manner so that we walk in it. At that point, that's where the very nature and character of God infuses us that we might live in godliness. That's what the word hear calls us to. That's what this first practice of shaping our heart is all about. It's about hearing from God. You see, Here remains essential for us today because hearing God speak through his word remains the core of relationship with him. Romans 10, 17 says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing how? By the word of God. Galatians 3, chapter 2 says that God works. His work in us is by hearing with faith. 
hearing with faith. But the, the opposite of that is true as well. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 tells us this, that spiritual weakness, when we feel weak in our spiritual life, spiritual numbness, when we feel nothing, spiritual laziness, you got no motivation. Spiritual apathy, couldn't care less. Spiritual apostasy, I'm out of here. Right? All of these things occur when we become dull of hearing. That's what Hebrews 5.11 tells us. When we cease to listen to God, when we cease to hear, we no longer allow God to shape our heart. We become weak, numb, apathetic, lazy, and walk away. There's, top, uh, there, there's what I would call three top spirit killers in the world today. And here they are. Plugged ears, blocked hearing, and unfiltered noise. Plugged ears. Have you noticed how everyone wears earbuds today? I ran into a man the other day. I didn't know him uh, for some reason. I don't remember where we met, but we just happened to run each other into each other and had a brief conversation but he had one earbud in one ear and the other earbud hanging out and the wire ran into his pocket I assume it was connected to his phone but it you know it might have just been running into his pocket to look cool this guy was in his mid-60s and my first thought was why you got that hanging out of your ear you know I see men walk into the men's room and they got like their bluetooth running on their ears you know I'm like man can you not take 30 seconds Right, right, I mean just, you know, or maybe two minutes, whatever it's going to take in here. But just disconnect, because if that thing rings, I'm going to be forced to make noises that are embarrassing for you. Because that's the way God wired me, and I just think it might be funny. You know, I'm going to do it. We got plugged ears. Look, Look at this generation. They walk everywhere with headphones on. I'm not against headphones, I love music. But what are we doing? We're just disconnected. We're just dis- you've, heard the, you've heard the old adage that the most connected generation in the world is the most disconnected relationally. It's true. We've got blocked hearing. What happens when we get angry, when we get bitter, when we get upset or mad? What do we do? I'm not listening to you. You have nothing to say to me right now that I even care to hear from you. Shut your mouth. Right? Why? Because I am angry and I am not listening to you. Right? We may not say it, but the instant the anger rose, that's exactly what happened. La, 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 la. Right? I mean, we're done. I didn't hear that. I don't know how loud it was. The other one is this. It's unfiltered noise. In the age of information, when the amount of information, this was several years ago the statistic came out, doubles every two years. And at that amount of information, we can't comprehend it or process it. What do you think it's going to do to us? It's going to overwhelm us. Overwhelm us. We've got to take the earbuds out. We've got to lower the defenses. We've got to filter through the clutter. Because God says, hear me I'm speaking I love the song the old hymn called in the garden says this I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice that I hear falling on my ears 
the Son of God discloses. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing. And the melodies that he sings to me within my heart are speaking. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Friends, the gospel shapes our heart when we hear God speak. Second practice is that we live in an exclusive relationship with God. The second part of verse 4 says this. Hear, O Israel, and then he says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses makes two clarifying distinctions about God. Two declarations. The first one is this. The Lord our God. You see, the Hebrew people enjoyed a relationship with God. A relational knowledge, just as we do today in Christ. God was not distant. God was not removed. He was not unknown. He was not merely speculated about, but he was near and he was with his people. They had heard him speak upon the mountain. They had felt the warmth of his breath through the fiery mountain that was burning. They, they saw the thick cloud and the dark smoke that shrouded his presence that they might be able to look up on him and they knew this that the Lord our God is beyond us but he is not removed from us he is with us and he is among us you see God is relational he's not religious God is not found in the rituals of doing but he is found in the relationship of communing And in that communion with him, he gives to us a deepening love that we might know him. And he says this, the Lord our God. That's what Moses is saying to them. He is our God. We know him in a deep communion, in the fellowship of a relationship where he's revealed himself to us. And he has brought us near that he might speak and we we might hear him. But he makes a second declaration about God, and that is this. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. I love the order of these. Because he would have been fully justified to say, boom, the Lord is one. He's our God. But what did he say? He said, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He reminded you of the relationship that you have with God. As he declares the exclusivity of God's nature and of God's character. That's the second thing he said. The Lord is one. There's no greater profoundness captured in a simpler statement than this. The Lord is one. And Moses reveals the exclusive nature of God 
through this statement. You see, the, the number one there, or the word one, it's not a numerical accounting, but rather it's a declaration of unity, that God is one in and of himself. And this is not saying that he's not Trinitarian God, that theologically that develops later in the scriptures, and we're able to look back and see that from all eternity past that God was always a Trinitarian God. So what Moses is saying here as he declares the nature and the being of God as one is not refuting our understanding that he is a Trinitarian God, but it's making a declaration through which we can understand God is a Trinitarian God. And it begins this way, that he is one. It's a declaration of his unity, but it's also a declaration of his exclusivity. That God is worthy to be worshipped before all others and like no other. God is exclusively God. Let me tell you a little bit about my marriage. I hope yours is somewhat like this. Not because mine's perfect, because it's not. I'm in it, and so that proves that it's not perfect. When I got married, I committed to my wife through vows in the covenant of marriage that I would not look upon another woman in the way that I look upon my wife. She is the one for me. I love how I've counseled young adults and, and even sometimes teenagers through the years in ministry, and they're like, oh, my, i got to find the one, man. There's all this pressure to find, like, the one, and, oh, can I choose correctly? And I'm like, it's not about that. It's about the moment. When you recite those vows before God with your spouse and you vow in this covenant that she will be the one. That's what makes it one before God. And so in this marriage, I don't look at I don't talk to, I don't think about, I don't act towards, I don't spend money on, I don't give time to, I don't engage in conversation with. And the list, quite frankly, is endless in any way that describes a relationship. I don't do any of these things with any other woman in a way that compares in any way to the way that I do these things with my wife. Does that make sense in any way? You understand what I'm saying. Why? Because... She's my wife. And all the energies of this life are directed only at her. And you know what? When I don't feel it, I still do it. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to set myself up here to be the perfect husband because I am far from that and I fail miserably in my marriage and have to repent to my wife regularly and I have to ask for her forgiveness and, 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 and plead that she would give it to me. But you see, my point is this. It's not that there aren't other women around. It's that she is the one. She is the one. And what Moses is saying is this. The Lord is one. There is no other. Christians don't look at. We don't think about. We don't long for. We don't energize around. We don't increasingly desire anything above God, not money, not our job, not our stuff, not our recreation, not our relaxation, not our entertainment, not our comfort, not our uh, prominence, our power, our position, but because all of these things are at best a number two. 
And most of them are much further down the list than that. How do we know that? Because you can get all that you can grab in the midst of any one of them or all of them together and they will all leave you as dissatisfied as you were when you walked into them. But not God. But not God. You see, the Lord is one means that God is our only God. God does not command that he be our highest God. God does not command that he be our first God. God does not command that he be our most, our best, or our favorite deity. God says this, there is no other. God is worthy of worship that places him before and above all else. And a right relationship with God means that we exclusively worship him alone. Now, We are all infected with sin spiritually and our hearts are, as one theologian has said, an idol factory. We create idols faster than we can imagine them. And so my point to you is to say this. Remember, you must unplug your ears, you must lower your defenses and you must clear through the clutter to say He is the one for me. That's what it means to practice an exclusive relationship with God. The third practice that I want us to see is that we apply our whole life to love God. Deuteronomy 6.5 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Some verses, uh, especially in the New Testament, when the gospel writers are quoting this verse, they'll include another word. They'll say heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or they'll use a different word, heart, spirit, and, and mind. The point is not this. The point is not getting the list correctly. But the point is what Moses is saying to the Hebrew people in this statement. You see, a right love for God consumes the whole of life. And so what Moses is doing is he's teaching the people how to love God, how to obey God, how to fear God rightly. And he says this, it begins with love. Because the essence of God's law, we've already seen, is love. And the essence of love... Loving God is to obey. And so true love for God means loving God with your whole being. He teaches that we're to love God with the whole of our life. He's not teaching us to compartmentalize with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength. You should love God. And so you go, oh my goodness, I don't know how to divide these things. How in the world? But, but that goes here or does it go there? We laugh about that, but that's what we do, is it not? I am good on Sunday, man. I, I sing. People, people tell me how good and how much they enjoy hearing my singing that's sitting in front of me. They might just try and be trying to get me to be quiet and, and not sing as loud. But, but I love singing. I worship good. And, and man, Sunday, I'm so good with God. Monday, I, I'm not quite as good with God, but I'm still pretty good with God. It is Monday after all, you know. And so I'm, but man, by Wednesday, I have completely lost it. And I'm just desperate and trying to hang on. And so by the weekend, I'm salving all my little false idols. And by Sunday, I'm coming back once again, right? Now, maybe we don't follow such an extreme cycle, but my point is this. We have ways of compartmentalizing our life where we measure ourselves before God and we say, hey, God, I'm doing pretty good here. Let's just leave this alone, okay? And we divide our life 
in order to make it manageable. You see, what Moses is saying is that a right love for God unites all of a person in the gospel to express a complete love that God alone is worthy of. God cannot be partially loved. And when we strive to partially love God, we will become frustrated and condemned because we will yell at God going, do you not see how great I am doing here? Would you stop talking about how I fail miserably here? And so we have this argument with God. And what happens when we begin to compartmentalize our life, we we begin to say to God that we're going to love you the way we want to love you. We're going to give you the time that we can afford to give you. We're going to give you the money that we can stand to part with. I'm going to give you the energy and service that is left over. And I'm going to give you the thought and the study of mine that I deem necessary without really consideration for what your word says. You see, compartmentalized Christianity produces a partial love for God that always frustrates and leads to spiritual defeat. Let me illustrate it this way. My parents were the greatest gift givers. You know why? They always gave me what I want. They gave me what I want. That's why they were great gift givers. Now, for all of you children in here today who are still getting gifts from your parents, that would include me. My birthday's coming up. Month away. Two months ago, I sent my list out to my family. I just want to help them love me as best they can, friends. It's all out of love for them. My parents, within reason, would give me the gifts that I wanted. Why? Because that's how they wanted to tell me how much they loved me. It doesn't... doesn't prove anything when you give someone a gift that you want them to have and we all have people like this in our life don't we when they give a gift you know it's coming it's not something you want it's not even something you care anything about it's something they want you to have and they've been dropping hints for months and they're about to give it to you and what do they do they give it to you and you go thank you this is wonderful thank you and it goes in the closet right I'm convinced this is why Craigslist has started, was started. We've re-gifted so many times that we fear it's going to get back to the original person with the inscription and we've got to have another way to unload this closet full of junk that we're so tired of getting, right? So let's create a website and get rid of this stuff. Let it be somebody else's problem. But when someone gives you a gift and it's something you wanted, what does it say? You love me. You knew me well enough to know this is what I wanted. You sacrificed and cared enough to get it for me. And you have given it to me just so I would know you love me. Here's what compartmentalized Christianity does. God, I don't really have time to listen to you. So let me tell you what I'm going to give to you. And we begin to say to him, I'm going to give you what I can afford to give you. I'm going to do what I can do. And you're going to have to deal with the rest. You see, the Lord who is one is only rightly loved when he is loved with our whole being. 
Not, it's, it's not about breaking life apart to make sure that Jesus is in every compartment, but rather the great commandment, what this verse becomes known as, it points us to look at Jesus and to see an all-encompassing love of God for us and to know that he alone is worthy of an all-consuming love from us. You see, God has satisfied our every need in what He has done in Jesus Christ. Therefore, He alone is worthy of a love that consumes the whole of who we are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Friends, the gospel shapes our heart when we apply it to the whole of our life in unity to love God out of all of it in a way that He alone is worthy. The fourth practice that I offer to you today is this. That we press God's Word upon our heart to expose sin and to apply righteousness. We press God's Word upon our heart to expose sin and apply righteousness. Verse 6 says this. These words shall be upon your heart. Some translations say it this word. Lay these words upon your heart. It's the imagery of applying them in such a way that you bring pressure to bear that something takes place as a result to the pressing upon the heart that is occurring by the word of God. You see, these words refer to the whole of God's law that Moses has been teaching them. Not just a few verses, you know, not just Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about just running to your favorite verses and pulling them out of context and using them as a band-aid to salve your spiritual life and make you feel better for a moment. But rather, it's consuming yourself in the ocean of God's whole counsel that the words of God might be pressed up on your heart so that the sin that is being harbored within might be exposed but the forgiveness and the cleansing power of God might be applied and righteousness be brought out. That's what it means to press God's word upon your heart, to expose sin and to apply righteousness. Let me just take a moment to explain this and then I'll wrap it up. I want you to listen to the effect of God's word that it has on our life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We so often quote this verse and we apply it for our doctrinal foundation of what we believe about the scripture because it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So that is something we clearly believe about God's Word because God's Word teaches that to us. But look what it says after that. So that the man of God may be complete. You know what that word complete means? Lacking nothing. Equipped, it goes on to say, for every good work. Look at the effect of God's word on your life. When you press God's word upon your life and when sin is exposed, we don't have to hide before God. He's the one that's with us. He stands ready in spiritual heart surgery to remove the sin, to apply forgiveness and the cleansing and to plant the seed of the gospel that righteousness might begin to grow in your life. You see, the very covenant of God promises to us that he will take our heart of stone and give 
give us a heart of flesh that we might know him. And that heart of flesh will have his words written upon it and his spirit abiding within it. It points us to Jesus when, our law, when God's law is written on our heart to see God's holiness and to see our sin and to look to Jesus who is the gospel and the working power of God within us. It works to conform us to God's will and to grow outwardly to produce actions that align with inward change. And this heart surgery that is taking place removes our sin and applies God's righteousness that we might walk with him in deep fellowship and communion. You see, when you only apply God's word to your actions, you are measuring what you can do for God and not what God has done for you. Outward actions should only reflect God's inward transformation. But what do we try to do? We try to perform for God and then expect God to be impressed with us. But God does not look at the outward appearance. What does 2 Samuel tell us? God looks at the heart. And that's where God does his work. Listen to one other passage in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. There's our doctrinal foundation about the word of God and what it is. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, a statement of belief about God's word. But listen to what it does. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. And in its piercing to divide those things, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word pressed upon our heart divides our soul and our spirit that it might see within to discern what is genuinely there. When we press God's word upon our hearts by reading it, by studying, by hearing it preached through the counsel of friends and pastors and pastors and trusted individuals, it divides our core to expose the sin but to apply God's righteousness. You see, changing our outward actions uh, to make us line up with rules is never our first goal. It's not what God intends for us. But God's word confronts our actions because that's where we live. It's in the real world. But it moves quickly to the inner recesses of the inner person. And we begin to see through the mirror of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that roots Uh, The roots from which our sinful actions are growing. And then beyond those roots, we see how they are anchored in the motivations of our heart. And those motivations help us to discern the points at which our true belief rests. And where that belief rests, our hope and our faith lies. And we see things like this. We see that, that we continue to act out in such ways because we're fearful of rejection of people. And we are fearful of a rejection of people maybe because we've, what we've come to believe about ourselves. We've not believed what God says about us. And so because we don't believe what God says about us, we believe that we must perform to please people, to make people happy because we want to be liked and we want to be loved. We want to be accepted by people. And so our outward actions are living in such a way that are driven and rooted in this self-acceptance that we have. And the Word of God takes us back and it goes all the way. He doesn't just go to the actions. He doesn't just go to the motivations. He doesn't even just go to the beliefs. But He goes where our hope and our trust lies. And He says, God loves you. The one who is God, the only one, there is no other. He loves you. 
You're already accepted. There's nothing you can do that would make God accept you more. But there's nothing you have to do. You've already been accepted. And in the deepest recesses of our life, the word of God is pressing righteousness and truth and holiness and godliness into us to go, yes, God, I believe that you love me and I will rest here. And listen, where we believe, we will anchor our hope and we will anchor our faith so that the way we live out will be rooted and motivated in the love of God that compels us to live in a certain way and not just hoping God will be happy with us one day press God's word upon your life friends yes there will be points at which it gets painful but the pain will not compare to the glory that it brings let me pray for us the worship team returns God, we need your help. Our hearts are broken to an extent that even deceives us about them. And we come before you today, Lord Jesus, to ask you to shape our heart. Lord, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ has given us all that we need for life, eternal life in you. And he is our only hope. He is our only resort. And Lord, we turn to you today through Jesus to do a work in us. Friend, I hope that more than you've heard my voice today, you have heard the voice of God speaking to you. Not, not because of me, but because His Word is real. It's alive. I hope you, in your discernment of what you have heard today, are convinced so that you will trust that God is worthy of your exclusive worship. Because I know many and all of us walked in today with at least the temptation to turn away if not the full out living in complete opposition to God you don't believe that God's worthy of exclusive worship you don't believe that if you let go of that relationship if you set down that drug you don't believe if you stop that sinful habit that God will be enough to satisfy you says that he is worthy of exclusive worship you want to love God with the parts of your life that you like and that you're good at and you want God to leave you alone in the parts of miserable failure but what I'm saying to you today because the gospel says this is God's here for your miserable failures he's the only one that can redeem them but he will redeem them to the uttermost he will do that as you press the word of God upon your life to receive from him. Here's the invitation I want to extend to you. In just a moment, our congregation is going to come forward to the tables.
Because as we take these resolutions each week, we're going to marry them with the table of communion to make sure that we know it is God who is working in us and not us that is working for God. God has already done, so we are free to love, enjoy, and pursue Him. And so as the congregation comes, uh, there's, there's two tables on the side and one in the middle, and you'll see the way they flow through the room. But listen, I'll be at the front of one aisle, and Pastor Chris will be at the front of the next. Here's what we want you to know. That where you find your disconnect with God today, He stands ready to bridge that gap. Do you need to repent of your sins and and to turn away from yourself and and to place your faith in Christ for the first time, maybe become a Christian today. But you know the Spirit of God is leading you. You may not even know all that that means, but you know today you're supposed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to take that step of faith. We'll be here to receive you. You just follow the line and we'll be right here waiting for you. Some of you need to come for counsel and prayer today. You just need somebody to minister to you and to pray over you. We'll be here to pray for you. The Spirit of God will speak to you and will minister to you in that way. God wants to draw you near today. Will you you come? Will you follow Him close? Lord Jesus, help us. As the worship team leads us, let's come to the table together. You come. You need to respond to the Lord publicly.